The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Second and 10. They came after him on the last one. I don't think they'll sit back consistently. Here they come again. There's a flag down at the line of scrimmage. Is the pass is to an open Travis Kelsey, who flings it back over to Tony. My goodness, this is going for a touchdown. This is a, this is not a designed play. Kelsey's always looks around as if he's a quarterback, and he does this. And I can't believe it. I think it's coming back. Number 19, offense, lined up in the neutral zone. Wow. Five-yard penalty. Check him out. Tony was lined up. got to be kidding me. In the neutral zone. So the last time the Chiefs were called for offensive offsides, 1995, according to the research, it was called against Jeff Criswell in Week 7, against the Patriots. However, offensive offsides has been flagged much more this year than in recent years. More on that coming up in a moment. The show today, presented as always by Window Nation. Call them at 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com for a great deal. John Kime will be on with me. He comes up in the next segment. There's some news related to the Wizards and Caps potentially moving out of D.C. to Northern Virginia. I will get to that here in the opening segment. But we start with what was a nice day off from having to watch Washington play a regular season game. They've got four left starting on Sunday against the Rams. Then they play the Jets, then the 49ers and the Cowboys to finish up their 2023 slate. One month today, we will know for sure that Ron Rivera and much of his staff, if not his entire staff, I believe, will be gone. One month today will mark the Monday following the season finale against the Cowboys. And I think there could be other major announcements with respect to the rest of the organization as well. I've got some news related to what's next coming up here in a moment. But quickly on the day yesterday that did not include, thank goodness, the Commanders. It was nice to sit back and watch NFL football without having to worry about a Commanders 45-10 to loss. I actually was in New York 
for the weekend. Uh, was on my way back during the 1 o'clock games. Got back at halftime of the 1 o'clock games. So I caught the rest of the 1 o'clocks, the entire Buffalo-Kansas City game and everything that was going on in the late window. And then Dallas-Philadelphia start to finish. But I wanted to to start with Kansas City and Buffalo. First of all, I just want to say I think Buffalo, if they get into the postseason, is going to be a very dangerous team in the AFC. And the AFC playoff picture right now is so bunched up. It is in the NFC as well. In the AFC right now, you have uh, all but basically two teams that if they were to run the table with four wins would likely be in the postseason. Now the Jets at five and eight, the Raiders at five and eight, and the Chargers at five and eight certainly don't look capable of running four in a row. But if they were to run four in a row, more likely than not, they would be in at nine and eight, or certainly right there with a chance at nine and eight. Justin Herbert's hurt. He's not going to play in the Thursday night game against the Raiders. Uh, he broke a finger in the loss to Denver yesterday. I'm not Trust me, I don't think the Chargers, Raiders, or Jets are going to make a run. And the Titans play tonight. Uh, They are in the smell test. More on that later on. Just a confirmation uh, a little bit later on uh, that they are in uh, the smell test. Uh, They are in the smell test, but you'll hear me talk about it uh, before the last segment of the show today. But um, Buffalo is currently, based on tiebreakers, the 11th place team in the AFC at 7-6. and Cincinnati is seven and six. Denver is seven and six. Houston is seven and six. Indy is seven and six. Pittsburgh is seven and six. That is a group right there of six teams all vying for the six and seven spot in the AFC. They're all tied based on record for the sixth spot and the seventh spot. Currently, the Steelers and the Colts hold the tiebreakers. Cleveland is in the five spot. Their division race is still alive. Technically, uh, you know, Cleveland still got a shot in the AFC North. Uh, Buffalo's a long shot at this point. AFC West, Denver's only a game back of Kansas City. AFC South, two teams, Indy and Houston, are only a game back of Jacksonville. But man, you have. 11 legitimate teams in the hunt for the 6 and 7 spot. Actually, the 5 spot, too. And then another three teams that are still within you know, uh, two games of that postseason spot uh, or two uh, wildcard-wise in the AFC. Crazy, crazy race. Buffalo, though, out of all of those teams, I think by far and away is the most dangerous if they were to get in. Uh, And they went to Kansas City, and for the third time in the regular season, they beat the Chiefs at Arrowhead 20-17, to but not without incredible controversy in the final uh, two minutes of that game. If you haven't seen the play, you should Google it. It's one of the most amazing plays you'll ever see. A pass 
from Mahomes to Kelsey. Kelsey on the run then stops and throws a pass backwards, lateral, but it's not a pitch lateral. It's a pass across the field to Kadarius Toney, who runs it in for a touchdown. Now, that would not have given them the win. This was not a final Hail Mary kind of a play. There was a minute 12 left on the clock when Kadarius Toney crossed the goal line. Buffalo still had three timeouts left. They would have gotten the ball back down 24 to 20 if the play had stood. It was a risky play, by the way, uh, as far as Kelsey goes. I mean, he could have been hit as he was getting ready to lateral it, and it would have been a fumble. It was they were in field goal range with plenty of time to still go for the touchdown um, in the spot that he was in on the field. A field goal would have tied it. It was really. I mean, I don't know how many people in the midst of the controversial penalty that followed talked about how outrageously high risk the Kelsey play was and how totally unnecessary it was. Again, they would have been at the Buffalo um, they would have been at the Buffalo 23-yard line with a minute 12 to go, still, by the way, two timeouts left, down three with plenty of time. By the way, in a better position to either you know, tie the game late and not leave Buffalo with any time left or score a touchdown and leave Buff- Buffalo with a lot of time left. So the play itself, while wild to watch, was not, I don't think, a recommend, recommended play for Kelsey. But anyway, as you probably know by now, Kadarius Toney was called for lining up offsides. Um, and this has not sat well at all with the Chiefs, especially Patrick Mahomes, who went off on the sideline at the end of that game, after the game. Same with Andy Reid. Um, it is a rare call, not as rare as you would think. More on that coming up in a moment. What you did see, though, without question, was Kadarius Tony line up offside. You also saw, for the most part, Kadarius Tony. At least, there's no evidence as of the recording of this podcast that Kadarius Tony actually did what. Terry McLaurin did last year against the Giants, remember, in the late season game that they lost to New York before a touchdown that would have given Washington a chance to go for two and tie the Giants late in that December game, and that is check with the referee to see if he was okay in terms of an alignment or if he needed to move up or move back a little bit. You did not see Kadarius Toney do that. Kadarius Toney lined up offsides, and... The referee uh, in the game yesterday said the following. Carl Cheffers, the head referee in the pool report, said that the down judge, Mike Carr, saw Tony lined up offside. Quote, ultimately they are responsible for wherever they line up. No warning is required, especially if they are lined up so far offsides where they're actually blocking our view of the ball. We would give them a warning if it was anywhere close, but this particular one is beyond a warning, closed quote. So in the estimation of Carl Sheffers and down judge, line judge, Mike Carr, they couldn't even see the ball. So if Tony had turned to them and said, hey, maybe they would have said, back up, we can't even see, we can't even tell you're so far off sides, and maybe they would have backed them up. But they have no requirement to do so. They don't. 
Just like when Terry McLaurin looked to the referee, and it's a little bit debatable as to whether or not he got a thumbs up or not in that giant game, they don't have a requirement. Usually you will get something from the referees, but they're not required to do so. So if you're curious like I was to find out or to know how you know rare offensive offsides is in the NFL and whether or not you know Kansas City is somewhat normal with respect to the last time they were called for offensive offsides, which for them was all the way back in 1995, I did a little Googling before the show. And actually, Peter King did a lot of the research for his MMQB or Football Morning in America uh, column. Uh, because observationally from the season, I have definitely noticed more offensive offsides penalties having been called and definitely more defensive offsides penalties having been called. I mean, we've talked a lot on this show specifically about the Cowboys and all of their pre-snap lining up offsides penalties. So how rare is it? Well, um, here you go. Here are the numbers. From 2016 through 2019, not one offensive offsides penalty was called. Four seasons, 16, 17, 18, and 19, not one. Then in 2020, there were six called as they decided to emphasize that. It was a point of that, of emphasis, and there were six offensive offsides penalties called in 2020. However, in 2021 and 2022, maybe because of the emphasis and the number that were called the year before, just one in 2021 was called and just two offensive offsides penalties in 2022 were called. This year, through the game late yesterday afternoon between Buffalo and Kansas City, there have now been 12 offensive offsides penalties called. Now, a lot of that is attributed to the brotherly shove or the tush push play, the quarterback sneak with, you know, and I think Philadelphia actually in the game last night got called. So that would be 13 offensive offsides uh, penalties. Um, But there has been a bit of an emphasis on that. But the bottom line is, is that Kadarius Toney's been you know, in many ways hurtful to the Chiefs since he got there. He had the big big punt return in the Super Bowl, that's for sure. And he's had a couple of memorable plays. But he's dropped passes. I mean, the Chiefs lead the league in drop passes. They had another four yesterday. Uh, He's had bad penalties in the past. And he lined up offsides. You know, they can bitch all they want. They can say all they want that, you know, the referee should have moved him back. But Kadarius Toney, at least as of now, unless something else has come out, did not look for confirmation that he was lined up legally. And again, they don't have an obligation to provide him with that information anyway. Um, Look, the Chiefs are struggling right now. I mean, they really are. It's amazing. Maybe it is the loss of Eric Bieniemy uh, or Juju Smith-Schuster. They're certainly not as explosive offensively as they have been in years past. They've now lost three out of their last four games. They're eight and five. You know, they still had an opportunity after that play was called back. They had a third and 15 and a fourth and 15. And, you know, part of what I think Mahomes was really upset uh, about was – he basically was very calm in the loss last Sunday night at Lambeau when there was definitely a pass interference call missed 
on Valdez Scantling at the end of that game that would have put a, put them in position to score a touchdown, go for two to tie it and force overtime. But they still had two more plays yesterday. And how many times have we seen Mahomes, you know, come up with a magic act on third and fifteen or fourth and fifteen? And he didn't last night. In fact, the fourth and fifteen throw was, you know, under pressure, but it was pretty, you know, it was pretty bad. Um, didn't create uh, at all, and the Bills won a game that they had to have. You know, 20-17, to 17, that puts them right back into the mix. I mean, their schedule is, you know, pretty brutal. They played the, the, the Cowboys Sunday in Orchard Park. Um, so they've had the Eagles, Chiefs, and Cowboys in three consecutive weeks. They close with the Chargers, Patriots, and Dolphins. The Chargers now could be in big, big trouble. They already are record-wise, but without Herbert, um, they're in bad shape. Uh, but, man, if Buffalo gets in, them hanging on for that win yesterday, they had a 14 nothing lead in that game as well. But if they can somehow put together another, you know, I think they probably have to win three out of their final four to get to um, to get to ten to ensure a playoff berth. Two out of their final four gives them a shot at nine and eight. But there are just so many seven and six teams. You would think that two of those six, seven, and six teams are able to win three out of the their final four to get to ten wins. And with Cleveland at eight and five in the five spot. Um, yeah. Uh, now the Bills do close with the Dolphins. They're seven and six. The Dolphins play tonight, um, and they play tonight as a two touchdown favorite. If they win the game, they're ten and three. They're three in front of Buffalo, uh, and they would have um, you know the opportunity to close it out. They play the Jets this coming week, but they close with the Cowboys, Ravens, and Bills. So there is still a chance for Buffalo if they were to run the table and get to um, 11-6 and six because they beat the Dolphins earlier in the year. They could potentially play the Dolphins for the AFC East title in the final weekend of the year if, if the Dolphins win, uh, lose two games and they do have the Cowboys in two weeks on Christmas Eve and they've got the Ravens on the road on New Year's Eve. Man, there's still some big, big games left in the NFL. Uh, the other big game came last night. Uh, Dallas, they got it done. You know, they got their signature win. They throttled Philadelphia 33 to 13. Uh, you know, Philadelphia moved the football as they have kind of between the twenties, but they have really been pretty bad in the red zone, uh, in particular. Um, but where Philadelphia is really bad is on defense. And I'll get to that in a moment because I do want to give the Cowboys their proper due. Because I have friends who are Cowboy fans, Cowboy Clay, Kenny, others, who say often that I don't give them enough credit when they win. Well, I mean, until yesterday, they hadn't, until last night, they really hadn't beaten anybody. I mean, they beat the Seahawks last Thursday, but that was a 41-35 to shootout. Um, But uh, give them their due. The Cowboys are rolling. They've won five in a row. Um, The offensive... Uh, ability of the Cowboys. Dak's playing the best football of his career. CeeDee Lamb has developed into an absolute stud. I love, have fallen in love with, I don't know how Cowboy fans feel. Maybe you guys saw this coming, but I didn't see Jake Ferguson coming. 
Um, you know, the fourth round pick from back in 2022. He only had 19 catches last year. He's got 51 this year, uh, and he is much more athletic than I think he even gets credit for. Uh, and then, you know, you've got the rest of them. You've got Gallup. You've got Brandon Cooks, who just seems to always be open. Cavante Turpin's a big-time weapon, you know, whether it's on reverses or fly sweeps. Uh, Pollard's playing well. Dowdle got banged up a little bit. They're really good on offense, really good on offense. And then and on defense, they have exceptional players as well. Stefan Gilmore last night was lights out, I thought. Um, but give Dallas credit. They're 10 and 3. They're tied with Philadelphia. Philly's problem is defense. They are a bad defensive football team. Uh, it's really, you know, every year is a different year. Bill Barnwell really laid it out nicely in his long column about four teams that are struggling, Kansas City, Detroit, Jacksonville, and Philadelphia. And he wrote, let's keep it simple. The Eagles' defense is bad. Not bad by last year's standards. Not bad by Philadelphia's standards. Not bad by their expectations heading into the season. Not bad by the measure of other Super Bowl contenders. Over this six-game stretch that followed the win over the Dolphins, they have a strong case as one of the worst defenses in the NFL. Uh, Since their win over Washington at FedEx Field, they are dead last on third downs allowing 54.8% on third down. They also are near last on fourth downs, allowing eight for 14 on fourth downs. They can't get off the field. Their defense cannot get off the field. This is something we talked a lot about earlier in the season when Washington had great success against the Eagles with their offense. And Sam Howell looked great in the two games against the Eagles. But the Eagles are a bad defensive football team. Because they can't get off the field, their offense isn't getting enough opportunities. Last night, the Cowboys had 36 minutes and 36 seconds time of possession to 23 minutes, 24 seconds for the Eagles. They ran 74 plays to the Eagles, 52 plays. Last week against the 49ers, it wasn't nearly as bad uh, in terms of time of possession, but that's because they let the 49ers roll it all up in three quarters. They got some stops early, and they dominated the first quarter time of possession, but that got, then got completely dominated the rest of the way. The 49ers missed on their first two third downs and then went eight for their next eight before missing basically at the end when they were running the clock out. Um, The Eagles have been beaten the last two weeks, 75-32. to And don't forget, they gave up 34 against the Bills in that overtime win against Buffalo, when Buffalo dominated time of possession because Philly couldn't get off the field on third down or fourth down. Buffalo was 13 of 22 on third down in that loss. They ran 92 plays and rolled up 505 yards and lost the game. So what's different about Philadelphia? Why are they so bad defensively this year versus last year? Well, 
They've got different players and a different defensive coordinator. Last year, they had Jonathan Gannon. He's the head coach in Arizona. Last year, they had different linebackers for the most part. They had C.J. Gardner-Johnson. Up front, they had Javon Hargrave. Now, they replaced him with Jalen Carter, pretty good replacement. Um, They're also older at corner. We've talked about that this year. Bradbury doesn't look like the same player. Slay's still a good player, don't get me wrong, but they're a year older. Philly's just not the same personnel-wise on defense. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but offenses year to year, there's much less variance with respect to overall production than there is with defenses. Defenses, you know, can get you know, even with the with similar personnel, there can be great variability year to year in terms of production. We've seen that with Washington this year. Uh, last year, a top 10 defense by a lot of key metrics. This year, the worst in the NFL per DVOA. Yeah, the worst in the NFL, 32nd in DVOA. But Philadelphia is going to have to do it offensively if they're going to you know, make a run to the division title, which they actually have a much easier schedule. They play Seattle next week on Monday night. Then they've got two against the Giants and one against the Cardinals, while the Cowboys have Buffalo, Miami, and Detroit the next three weeks before finishing at Washington. So Philadelphia still holds the inside track to the division title based on schedule. But if they're going to do anything in the postseason after being absolutely hammered the last two weeks by what I think now are the two front runners in the NFC, the 49ers are the front runner. But I think the Cowboys now have emerged as the second best team in the NFC and the biggest threat to the 49ers uh, because they're a more complete team than the Eagles are uh, right now. Um, the Eagles. You know, we're winning all those close games, and they were doing it with that championship medal that people talked about. But, man, uh, smoke and mirrors on defense. And really, this year, think about this. The New York Jets, who can't score against anybody, now they did yesterday against Houston in the second half, right? Um, They lost to the Jets. You know, the Jets, now I think they scored on defense. Um, But... Uh, the Eagles have struggled defensively all year long, and um, it's interesting to see them right now. They look like a tired team also. And to be fair to them, all right, and this is not a shot at the Cowboys win or the 49ers win last week because I think they were both better teams, and even if Philadelphia had come into the game as rested, I think the outcome wouldn't have been that much different. But Philly had... Uh, last week, the 49ers off a 49ers Thursday mini-buy uh, situation, and they had the same with Dallas yesterday. Dallas came in as the well-rested team after playing back-to-back on Thursdays against Washington and Seattle, and Philadelphia had that game against the 49ers late Sunday. So bit of a scheduling um, advantage for their last two opponents, but still, man, I mean, they could have easily lost to Buffalo, could have easily lost to the Chiefs on Monday night, could have easily lost to the Cowboys. They have trailed at halftime in six consecutive games. They've won four of them, to their credit. To their credit, they've won four of them. They have not looked legitimately good since beating the Dolphins all the way back in late October on Sunday night football. Um, Could they get it rolling again? Sure, but will we have faith that it's legit with the Giants twice and the Cardinals um, among their final four games? I don't know. 
Uh, but good win for the Cowboys. Elsewhere around the NFL, let me just quickly focus on a couple of games. How about the Bucs uh, coming from behind to beat Atlanta 29-25? I mean, two teams that haven't been super offensively uh, got into a second-half shootout, and Atlanta behind Baker Mayfield and a long drive at the end of the game beat the Falcons 29-25 despite 347 passing yards for Desmond Ritter, the best day uh, yardage-wise, I think, of his very young career. And in that NFC South now, with New Orleans beating Carolina yesterday, uh, two te- three teams, excuse me, three teams are six and seven. Um, so that'll be quite the tussle down the stretch. And it's not, you know, unlike the NFC East a few years ago, it's not like it's impossible that you only end up with one team in the postseason because it's still very possible that an 8-9 and nine team gets into the postseason in the NFC. Um, staying in the NFC, uh, the 49ers continued with their ways. 28-16 over Seattle. Wasn't easy. Drew Locke got the start for an injured Geno Smith. But Christian McCaffrey, 16 carries, 145 yards, 9.1 yards per carry. Uh, and Debo Samuel, just un. Stoppable. Then in the NFC, how about Chicago over Detroit? They nearly beat them a few weeks ago at Ford Field. They blew a two-score lead. Yesterday, they beat the hell out of the Lions, 28-13. And Chicago, very quietly, very quietly, has put together three wins in their last four with the one loss being that that game against Detroit in which they had a two-score lead. And the Bears behind Justin Fields and and an improved defense led by Montez Sweat. He had another sack yesterday. He's got three and a half now since the trade to Chicago. He had four QB hits, eight QB hurries yesterday for the Bears in their win over the Lions. They've won two of the four games since the trade for Sweat. Could have easily been three out of four. Uh, you know, they blew the game to the Lions a few weeks ago, being up 26 to 14 in the fourth quarter, and they lost 31 to 26. Montez Sweat um, reportedly said this yesterday. He said um, that Matt Eberflus, the head coach, deserves a lot of credit for continuing to keep this team together because it wasn't like that where he was, as in D.C. This is a really tight group. Eberflus is a great coach, Sweat said. He keeps us motivated. A lot of respect for him as a coach. Closed quote. Uh, Sweat taking a little bit of a shot at his, at his former team and pumping up a guy who's been on a seat that's very warm. But who knows? I mean, the Bears with four games left at five and eight after starting zero and four before they beat Washington. They were two and seven at one point. Now they're five and eight. They play the Browns this week, and then after that they've got Cardinals, Falcons at home, and they close at Lambeau against the Packers. I mean, the Bears. If they were to run the table, they'd be in the postseason at nine and eight. At if they win three of their final four, eight and nine is an outside possibility for the Bears. Crazy, but the Chicago Bears look pretty good. And here's something to keep in mind when it comes to the Bears. You know, the more they win, the more they're winning because, in part, Justin Fields is playing well. What will they do with Carolina's number one overall pick? Will they draft Caleb Williams or Drake May or Jaden Daniels, or will they keep Justin Fields and look to trade the pick? Or will they trade Justin Fields and use the pick? 
Who knows? Uh, lots of intrigue with Chicago over these final four weeks and then certainly in the offseason. Remember, Washington holds the Bears' second-round pick, which we thought would be super early in the second round. Well, not if they continue to win. But then again, them continuing to win has improved Washington's first-round pick. Uh, so there you go. Um, and second-round pick, for that matter. Uh, Bears, an interesting uh, story. Uh, Justin Fields, an interesting story. They play the Browns, as I mentioned. The Browns just had Joe Flacco go for 311 yards and three touchdowns in their win over Jacksonville, 31-27. to Miles Garrett, after the game, asked to describe new quarterback Joe Flacco, who Kevin Stefanski, the head coach, said he's now the starter the rest of the year. Of course he is. Uh, Miles, Garrett's, Miles Garrett's answer was, quote, he's elite, close quote. Uh, flashback back to the, is Joe Flacco elite or not? Pretty funny from Miles Garrett. Flacco, amazing. Uh, the, the reviews coming from Cleveland. Keep in mind what they had. Dorian Thompson, Robinson. Deshaun Watson not playing at a super high level. P.J. Walker, etc. Um, he's thrown for 565 yards and five touchdowns in two starts for the Browns. Off his couch. Um, he, uh, as Stefanski said yesterday, he's got the experience. He's been there, done that. There's no doubt he's given us a lift, closed quote. The Browns, what's interesting about them, a team where they were led by their defense. Now in back-to-back games, is, uh, three straight games, has given up 29, 36, and 27 points. They finish with the Bears, Texans, Jets, and Bengals. They certainly look like a playoff team. Can they catch the Ravens? Who knows? How about the Ravens yesterday winning on a punt return in overtime? Second time that's happened this year. It happened with the Jets in the season opener, the game that Aaron Rodgers got hurt in uh, against the Bills. And you had an overtime punt return for a touchdown as a walk-off yesterday. The Ravens beat the surging Rams. I mean, that would have been a huge win for L.A. Uh, But the Ravens win that game 37-31. But listen to what the Ravens have. Next uh, Sunday night against the Jags. Then Christmas night against the 49ers. Then New Year's Eve against the Dolphins. And then they close with the Steelers. So, you know, the the Ravens right now with a two-game lead over Cleveland and they split with Cleveland, they're not home free as far as the number one seed or the division title. Not quite yet. Uh, They and the Dolphins more likely after tonight will be um, standing atop the AFC with Kansas City and Jacksonville now two games back. Trevor Lawrence did play in that game against Cleveland but really struggled. Speaking of, you know, new quarterbacks um, playing anyway, not necessarily in a new place, how about the back-to-back games for Jake Browning? As Cincinnati rolls into yesterday 34-14, to and Jake Browning now in the last two games, all right, after looking terrible in relief against Baltimore and really bad against Pittsburgh in his start. He was 32-37 for 354 and a touchdown against Jacksonville in their overtime win on Monday night. 34-31. Then they come back six days later and at home beat Indianapolis 34-14. He was 18 of 24 for 275, two touchdowns, one pick. Uh, this guy's completion percentage now is 81.5% in two games. 
Um, he had a 71.5 QBR yesterday, was an 84.1 QBR against Jacksonville. Cincinnati left for dead after the Joe Burrow injury. They've won two in a row. They're now very much in the hunt with the Vikings at home on Saturday. The Vikings needed a late field goal with under two minutes to go to beat the Raiders three to nothing. Yesterday, two scoreless halftime games. The Jets scored 30 in the second half behind Zach Wilson. Their defense completely shut down Houston. Stroud got injured after throwing for just like, you know, 80-something yards. They beat Houston 30-6, to the Jets did. Can you imagine if they had had a backup quarterback that could play this year? Um, but the Vikings um, – also were scoreless with the Raiders at halftime. That game went to the final two minutes scoreless before Greg Joseph's field goal beat the Raiders 3 to nothing. Uh, it certainly would appear now that Josh Dobbs' days uh, as a starting quarterback are over in Minnesota. He was 10 for 23 for 63 yards. They brought in Nick Mullins, career backup, who's had some moments. I mean, Mullins you know, has a lot of Heineke in him, has a lot of Colt McCoy in him. Uh, and he nearly got picked a couple of times, but then made a couple of good throws to get him in field goal range. And the Vikings are 7-6. and six. Their defense, you talk about a turnaround this year. One of the worst defenses in the NFL last year, one of the best this year under Brian Flores, who's done a phenomenal uh, job. Uh, the Broncos beat the Chargers 24-7. to Herbert's out. The Broncos now six out of their last seven. Um, and what other game is worth mentioning? Yeah, I guess that's pretty much it. Um, tonight, the two games uh, and the smell test picks. Uh, more on that before the final segment. But um, I, pr- I'm pretty sure I'm sticking with both of them. Uh, the Tennessee plus the points and the Giants plus the points. All right, two other things real quickly before we get to Kime. Number one is this. So I learned from multiple sources, uh, and this is not a big deal at all, But I think it's interesting. Um, I had two different people um, in the know share with me that Marty Herney has become a very trusted voice in the organization for new owner Josh Harris. Marty Herney brought to Washington by Ron Rivera. It was in Carolina as their general manager forever. Marty Herney's actual title is VP of Football Player Personnel. The general manager in the organization is Martin Mayhew. Um, But what I was told is that Marty Herney at 67 years old and having been in the NFL now for 30 plus years in a, you know, in an executive role, um, you know, Charlie Casserly, Bobby Beathard, very responsible for making Marty Herney, um, you know, turning Marty Herney from a beat reporter for the Washington Star, Washington Times into a, a careered football executive. But Um, I was told that while it's not, you know, any indication of whether or not Marty Herney is going to stay on in a significant role, um, it is an indication that Marty Herney is a very trusted, experienced um, voice that Josh Harris has come to lean on. Uh, And Marty Herney knows the NFL. He knows the landscape. He knows the players. We have been wondering, like, so who's Josh Harris using to come up with his list of candidates for – you know, new team president or general manager or both potentially. Um, And, you know, he was a a partial owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers and Kevin Colbert was there forever and he's unemployed right now or he's retired. I'm not saying that Marty Herney is the only guy. I was just told 
by two different pe- people in the know that Herney in the organization is somebody that Josh Harris uh, has come to lean on a little bit from a football standpoint in terms of, you know, looking towards the future. And remember this about Marty Herney, too. He's very familiar with the history of this team. Um, and, I mean, he grew up in the area. He's a D.C. native, native, went to good counsel many, many years ago, went to Catholic University. You know, I've always said about this particular organization, you need more people in the organization that know the organization. Marty Herney's been in the organization and he knows the organization. I'm just not sure people like Jason Wright or others have actually paid much attention. Certainly not Dan. Um, uh, you know, uh, and so maybe because Harris is smart and Rails is smart and Magic, they've looked for and found the guy that, you know, not only has a shitload of NFL executive experience, but really knows this franchise inside and out. So just something to keep in mind there. And then lastly, actually two things, uh, some breaking news as I'm recording this podcast, and I'll get to in a moment. Um, But I wanted to get quickly to this story written in part by Sam Fortier in the Washington Post. Also, Teo Armis, Laura Vatsala, and Gregory Schneider, all part of a story titled, Lawmakers Could Vote Today on Plan to Bring Caps and Wizards to Virginia. A group of Virginia state lawmakers plans to meet behind closed doors Monday afternoon to consider a potential deal to bring the Washington Caps and Wizards to a new arena in northern Virginia, according to four people with knowledge of the situation. Both teams would move to a facility anchoring a massive mixed-use development in Alexandria's Potomac Yard neighborhood according to three of the four, all of whom spoke on the condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to discuss details of the plan. A Virginia Stadium Authority would own the larger complex and lease it to Monumental Sports and Entertainment, which owns the Caps and Wizards. Monumental has not definitively said whether it would move the pro teams into Virginia. If the deal goes forward, the company would put hundreds of millions of its own dollars into the project, according to two people briefed on the matter. The deal, if approved, would constitute a major economic development win for Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, who has been hurting for such a victory after his party's losses in last month's state election elections. It could also be a step in monumental owner Ted Leonsis taking the company public, a move he openly considered in an interview with Bloomberg over the summer. Um, so uh, the idea of those two teams potentially moving out of Chinatown and into northern Virginia is crushing for that area of the district. You know, the development of Capital One Arena back in 1997 and the opening of that revitalized that whole area. That area has been struggling here recently, and pulling the two teams out would still leave Capital One Arena there for Georgetown games, presumably, for concerts, um, for other, you know, big events. Um, But, yeah, uh, it would also... Um, you know, they've been looking for money from the district. They've been looking for 600 or so million dollars in public funds for a major uh, renovation. But, you know, D.C. right now is under budget constraints and, you know, they have the idea potentially of adding uh, an RFK site new stadium for the football team. Uh, more on this tomorrow 
with Tommy. And we will also tomorrow with Tommy, I'll wait to get to the Shohei Otani $700 million deal. But one last thing real quickly before we get to Kime. Um, and this is breaking news. Uh, Jamin Davis is out for the last four games of the season. He's got a shoulder He's got a shoulder injury that he suffered in the Miami game, and he's going to be placed on injured reserve. Ron Rivera just moments ago making that announcement that Jamin Davis uh, is done for the season. Um, so you'll probably get, you know, Cody Barton and David Mayo with a lot of Kalik Hudson uh, and, uh, and others uh, over the final four games. All right, let's get to John Kime next after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jumping on with us right now, courtesy of our good friends at Window Nation. Call them at 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com for new windows. Give them the first shot. I've been endorsing Window Nation for 14 years. I promise you it will work out for you. 866-90-NATION, windownation.com. Buy two, get two free, plus 0% interest for five years right now is the Window Nation deal. John Kime is with us. Of course, John has covered the Washington football franchise longer than anybody else on the beat. He is he is the dean of the beat. You can follow him, of course, at John underscore Kime. John and I, um, John came on radio with me last week, and it was a couple of days after the uh, the the Florida State decision for the college football playoff, and somehow that got into a conversation about John's absolute one hundred percent. I mean, this is your passion, right? Ohio State football before anything else? 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's your thing. And so we got into a conversation about that. And 15 minutes later, I said, John, can you stick around for another segment? And there were several people that were thrilled with the conversation and others that said, please, when you have John on next time, I don't care about Ryan Day and Ohio State fans and the team up north. I don't blame <clears throat> Yeah. I don't blame him. Well, I don't care as long as, you know what? We entertained ourselves. So that yeah, was, that was listen, that. yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, did you see there the? You did you see some of the? You know, this is probably internet speculation more than anything else. But with Justin Fields playing pretty well right now, or occasionally well, you know, Chicago will have that big decision with Carolina's number one right. overall. Ryan Day to reunite with Justin Fields. What do you think about that in Chicago? I don't know. I haven't heard that, and I know his name will get brought up a decent amount and I also think it's always like we've heard that how many times do you hear that about college coach X is going to reunite in the NFL with their former guy from college you know I mean there was people said that about Urban Meyer and, and Dwayne Haskins and that was never going to happen right. so you know so like I don't you know I to be honest like if, if if you're only going to the NFL to coach a quarterback you're going to have some problems. That's what I would say. Because, like, I would look hard at that organization to see, and starting with ownership, where is that going to be a secure place just because they have Justin Fields? Now, I could see the Bears' appeal to going to get Ryan Day, but I have a hard time seeing Ryan Day's appeal going there unless you just want to go to the NFL. And, and in that case, then, you know, you follow the money in your heart, I guess. Remember that Urban Meyer thing? Urban Meyer was in FedEx Field to see Dwayne Haskins <laughs> yeah. against, I think it was against Philly, right? Well, it was to see it was to see several Ohio State players. It wasn't just right, for, including Terry McLaurin. Not just for that, correct? Right. Terry, Terry is his. Terry is like one of his favorite all-time players. Even though he did not give Terry much of a chance when Terry got there. He calls him one of the best leaders I think he's ever had. Um, but, you know, the team was pretty good when Terry was there. Um, and he developed. So, and they had some really good, they've always had really good receivers. So, you know, it's kind of hard to say that he was holding him down, but Terry developed. And, and that's, you know, Terry um, took coaching, hard coaching very well. Right. With there, and so I think um, you know, but I you know, but no, I mean, he calls him one of his favorite, like one of his best leaders. And when you meet McLaurin, you understand why. Yeah, it's the beginning of the relationship, though, between Terry and Urban Meyer. That's kind of um, yeah. It's well, I'm it's, not going to say it's, it's, it's a legend. Bit, yeah, it's that Ur- yeah, Urban it's wasn't. A bit, yeah, Urban loved his character, but didn't think he was anywhere near as good as the other guys he had. Yeah, and and. You know, and um, I know he had to, you know, earn, go back and earn the scholarship, and it's a little bit mythologized. Um, I remember talking to Terry about this and just how it was. Like, he went to the Ohio State camp, said, oh, you're not good enough, come back in a week or whatever. He goes home for a week, catches 100 balls every day, and he comes back and he's better. I don't think it was quite that, like, simple or, or harsh, um, but... Bottom line is paraphrasing the Cliff Notes version. That is kind of what happened, where you know you he had to go back and prove himself, and I think all of that has made McLaurin what he is now. So 
because he's never stopped feeling like he has to improve or prove himself. So, you know, and, but yeah, no, but he was a phenomenal, I remember before he came here, I I remember, I remember during that draft process in the early part of the draft, somebody wrote something about him and I, I retweeted it and said, he's a culture changer because he is, that's the kind of guy he was. I know what they thought about him there. And, um, you know, he certainly has been what you heard about. You know, I, um, I went to the whiteout game at Penn State. My son was a freshman that year, and it was a, it's the first time I'd been to a Penn State whiteout game, and, you know, a bunch of parents are up there for it, and it's the Ohio State-Penn State game back in 2018, and they were down a bunch in the second half, yeah. and Haskins, good. Haskins came back, and it was, um, and it was Terry McLaurin who was, I think, on the uh, – I think it was – would it have been Terry in 2018? Yeah, it would have been Terry in 2018 because his rookie year was 2019. But I'm pretty sure it yeah, was Terry. Terry was there, yeah. <clears throat> pretty sure yeah. it was Terry who had a couple of the big catches um, at the end of the game. I'm looking up the um, – no, it was K.J. Hill It was in Paris Campbell. K.J. Hill is the one that had it. Yeah, they I'm wrong. They went through a lot of smoke routes and receiver screens. And um, I don't remember Terry having that. I remember him against Maryland having some – and Terry's speed that last year showed up, and that's that was surprising to realize to learn how fast he was because you didn't see it early on, right? Not because he didn't show it because they didn't they didn't showcase that. But in that game, like yeah, KJ Hill had the the game winning touchdown, and um, Dwayne's was a huge win for him. Good, huge win. Coaching adjustments, yeah, it's huge. Did the good coaching adjustments. Went to a lot of screens, you know, horizontal passing game, and it worked. I'm thinking you're right. Your your, your memory of this is better than mine. I watched him throw to Paris Campbell and to K.J. Hill, Dwayne Haskins at Penn State. But later that year, I saw them play at Maryland in that 52-51 overtime game. Yeah. In which yeah. in which Terry had a big day um, against Maryland. Yep. In fact, I think he had um, one of the late touchdowns in the second half to sort. It was it was yeah. back and forth. And I'm pulling up the box score right now. Just so to, here's a here's a fun little thing for that because I was McLaurin four game. catches, 118 yards, and a touchdown. Yeah, well, in that game they yeah. were down like 17 to three or 17 six or something like that. 17 three. He has a long good memory. Yeah, and he has a long touchdown catch. And so I was at the game. JP Finley had given me his tickets. My wife and I, my wife and I had to drive separately, so I was going to meet her at our seats. But until she got there, I was going to stand behind the Ohio State section, right, in the where the family is and all that. So Tim McLaurin has catches that touchdown pass, and you're finally you kind of kind of like, okay, here you go. And but people are going crazy, and this woman comes out running up, and she's going crazy, jumps him, you know, end up hugging her, and turns out it was Terry's mom. <laughs> there you go. So yeah. Yeah, and he was like I. He was a guy that was hard to um, to not root for because he did everything. It was special teams. It was you know blocking as a receiver. He did all that stuff. That's why he was the kind of guy like. And that's what these guys thought they were getting: a special teamer and third or fourth, you know, third or fourth receiver type. Right. So, but yeah, no, that game was that was, they should have lost that game. Um, yeah, Ohio, Ohio State that year with Haskins, they lost to Purdue that year, and that was what kept them out of the playoff. But Maryland in that 52-51 overtime game, they scored, and they went for two in the win, and they missed yep. it. I mean, it's funny. Maryland was kind of open, too. Yeah, 
Yeah, uh, I think it was Pigram, Terrell uh, Piggy, as yeah, we referred to. Yeah, it was. I think there. I think it actually somebody. I think actually had a false start that they didn't call. Yeah. Something like that. I so it's like it could have it could have helped one team or another, and you know it didn't help Maryland. So, but and, yeah, but that was that was quite a game. Yeah. Anthony McFarland Jr. Dematha product, yeah. two hundred and ninety eight yards rushing for for the Turks because they could, they didn't know how to they didn't know how to stop an outside run, yeah. and and Maryland just hammered him at it so anyway um do do you know who coached that game for maryland i'm pretty sure i'm right about this matt canada i'm pretty sure really yeah i'm pretty sure matt canada was the interim coach (laughs) um for dj durkin after he was let go that year Uh, and you know the funny thing about matt canada at pittsburgh couldn't scheme up an offense but the terps under him in that particular season scored a lot of points you know they <clears throat> yeah no they did yeah, yeah. um all right uh his offense still isn't doing very well without Matt Canada so. <laughs> no it isn't no it isn't uh all right there we did it again um we weren't talking about <laughs> the Washington commanders uh so a couple things a couple of uh items here before we get to the actual football team so in the open to the podcast I mentioned that I had a couple of people tell me that Marty Herney actually has become a trusted voice for Josh Harris in the organization. Not necessarily, you know, telling me that Herney will be kept on as sort of the football lead, but that Herney is an advisor on sort of what will come next. Have you heard anything similar? Yeah, I'd heard that he was a respected voice. Yes. And you know, you hear things from outsiders, and it's like some of the stuff, like, don't even want to say because we don't know, right? I can't say, like, you hear, like, could he stick around? Well, you know, you hear things, but it's not enough to report it. But what I do know is that it sounds like, just like you, that he's a respected voice um, for Harris. What what that means from here, I don't know. But, but it is like, you know, yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, Marty Herney's been around the league now for a long time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, Bobby Bethard was, you know, along with Charlie Casserly, were really the ones that gave Marty all of those opportunities when, when you know, at Washington after he left uh, the Washington Star at the time. It wasn't even the Washington Times, I don't think. It may have become the Washington Times. No, it was a, no. Yeah. Was it the star? It was the star. I know that. Had it become the Times? Who well, knows? No, he, he was, by that point, it was, he was at the Washington Times. I think the star was already long gone. Okay. And um, then he became but, the but, PR yeah. guy for Washington and eventually yeah. worked his way up to, you know, a, a spot with the Chargers, with Bethard, and then eventually to Carolina where he became, yeah. you know, a longtime general manager uh, in the league. So he knows the landscape of the league. So anyway. Um, the second- and he knows the landscape of the organization and the fan base. You know, so it's another local person, in essence, for them to kind of tap into as well. Yeah, good point. Um, so I also just want to make sure that you're on, you're on the same page as far as this, this announcement on Friday about moving business operations to College Park. This means nothing with respect to where this, the next stadium will go, correct? No, it, yeah, no, God, yeah, okay. we're so okay. far. We are far from knowing where that next site is. No, that is, this is not connected to that. You know, no, it, there's a long way to go in that process. Like, it's, they really did start back at square one. And um, so, no, that we're, 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 I mean, Kevin, it could be, you know, I mean, it could be another year and a half before we know where that place is going. So that would be premature to think that. 
Yeah, and I think people have to kind of wrap their arms around the fact that they're going to play the next five years at FedEx Field. You know, five? At least if five. If only five, I think I'd be happy. Okay. You know, yeah, at least five. I, 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 yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, again, like, it would, something would have to really fast-track it, and the only place I think you fast-track it for is RFK. Like, if you think you've got X, Y, and Z lined up, and then you just fast-track it there, but that's not going on. So, you know, I think that's why I say I think it's going to take longer and even in that prospectus that they had that um, Seth Wickersham and I wrote about several months ago, um, they had also kind of looked at like 2030 or 2031, something like that, to, move, to moving into a new stadium. So I still, I would look more at that timetable than anything else because, again, they had to go back to square one. And that means, you know, getting, getting to know people and, and, you know, and it's not as simple as, okay, hey, we're going to do this for you. Boom, let's go. It's not that simple. There's so much that goes into it. Um, that it's going to take a while. So, you know, buckle up, folks. Could take a minute. Uh, Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, John, last week, along with Jeremy Fowler, wrote a really good story, which we talked about last week a couple of times on the podcast, um, titled How the Commanders Reach the Crossroads and What Comes (laughs) Next. They had a lot about the trading of Montez Sweat and Chase Young and Josh Harris's input into that. By the way, Montez Sweat had another excellent game for the Bears uh, yesterday. Um, And then there was a lot in there on Eric Bieniemy in particular and some in there on Jack Del Rio as well. So I'd ask the person responsible for writing this story along with Jeremy Fowler, what what did you think were the big takeaways for Washington fans or should have been? I think I'd probably go more to the enemy because that seems to be the one question that fans would have remaining in this situation, right? Um, and just, you know, is he the guy that would – because there's a lot of talk like they should keep him around. They should do this. I think when you dig into it, I think, you know, it's, it's not going to be – it's certainly not that simple. And um, you know, like, there's, there's obviously not every player, but there's certainly been some tension there. Um, and that's one of the things we talked about. I don't blame the enemy for all the issues on offense. I think that would be silly given the situation he stepped into, which is not a, not a great offensive line, um, a, a quarterback with one start, um, you know, et cetera. And they, it's not like they had a lot of their – they've been coming off offensive success. So it was always going to take a minute. So you can't – it can't be as simple as like, well, you – you know, he's harsh to them, or he's this, or he's like, you know, really hard on them, blah, blah. Well, that's why, well, there's a lot of other factors here, right? And so, um, but, you know, I think that to me is the big one. And also, because the other part to that is, um, I mean, they're going to look outside. You know, they're just, they're going to look outside this organization. And if you hire an offensive minded head coach, you're not going to keep the enemy around because it's an offensive-minded head coach. And even if it's a defensive guy, I think it's going to be I would be I would be surprised, right? Just just because I could just I could just see them wanting just to kind of move on from everything. Um and um you know, but that would be I would also say they're going to leave it up to whomever's in charge. Whatever the whoever the GM, whoever the new GM, the new coach is, that's who's going to make all these decisions. So 
Um, I think the other thing is, too, and, see, I mean, I know you've heard a lot of the same stuff, and and, pro- and there's more, right? But, you know, so I know, I don't know how, I don't know for some people who know it, how revealing was it to you? But I think for fans, like, to see it, and also to kind of walk through the process of how certain decisions were made that are major football decisions, like the trade or the firing of Del Rio, and how Josh Harris, his involvement in those, I think one of the things, when you look bigger, bigger picture, the takeaway is he's not Dan Snyder. And you, you probably already knew that, but maybe you weren't sure. Um, but that's one, that's another, I think, a takeaway is that it's just he's not the same guy. Like, he will ask questions. He will demand, not demand, he will be, have certainly high expectations for your work and, and, and for what you should produce. But he's not going to go to you and say, you need to make this move right now or else you're fired. It's not his M.O. And I think that's, you know, and I think the patient approach or the process approach is the one he takes. And I think, um, you know, that that may take a minute for some fans here to get used to. But I think it's to me, it's the right one. But I think that's that's another thing I think you can take away from this is just how they reach some of those decisions. and, And it wasn't because an owner meddling, like, and I, you know, the example is with the Carson Wentz trade. It wasn't, you know, like, you know that there was a, well, you didn't get the Russell Wilson trade completed, so get this deal done now, and kind of put a clock on getting it done, which then puts the leverage back in the Colts' hands, when they really didn't have any, because they really didn't want to keep the guy. So there doesn't seem to be any of that going on, which I think should be pleasing to Washington fans. You know, there are two other things. Uh, first of all, I agree with you. I, and I have to be careful because my perspective is different than maybe then from a lot of people listening because you're right. I think a lot of people in the media have heard a lot of things as it relates to enemy and the relationships. And again, probably not all his fault. Maybe just, you know, the wrong... Yeah place for a guy like him who knows but I thought that was obviously very uh, interesting but two other quick things one is it it actually sounded like Del Rio was a bit surprised and taken aback that he got fired yeah yeah and I think you know it's funny because I even asked someone at the time like was he surprised like a little bit but I think there was also I think you know he's a head coach though too and um you know, at some point you kind of know, like, something's going to happen, right? So it may have been a surprise, but I don't know that it was um, as much a shock. But, yes, there was there was certainly – it certainly seemed like that as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing was, you write <clears> – <throat> you guys write, the coordinator changes cast a pall over Rivera's future because of how much faith and responsibility he places in them. Several team sources mm-hmm. said Rivera defers to his coordinators on decision-making, sometimes to a fault. One of the team sources saying, quote, Ron needed to take more ownership, closed quote. Why don't you think he did at any time take more responsibility or be more involved in the day-to-day, that's the lack of a better description, versus being the delegating CEO coach? I think, to be honest, I think he's com- I think he's been comfortable with that. And I think it was something that when they were rolling in Carolina, and it, you know, go back to Carolina, but when you were rolling there, he had Sean McDermott. He had Steve Wilkes. And so there was a lot of trust that he placed in them to do their jobs. 
And so, you know, I think it worked. So you come here and you're doing the same thing. And, you know, Kevin, I also wonder, too, how much, how much the cancer affected his ability to take on more for a couple of years. Because right. that, that, stuff, that stuff impacted him, not just, that, not just 2020, but it impacted him for a few years. You know, and, and just like the stamina that you had, the, the energy level that you had. So he really needed to have coordinators that he could trust to do their job. And then he would sit in on meetings, he would do stuff and meet with players and all that. But yes, I do think that that was something that you'd hear. And like with the enemy, when he came in, he gave him a lot of control and say, and how meetings and how the days were structured and how the practices were structured. And that was unusual. And I know, you know, um, if there were issues with the enemy, he wanted the, the players to go to him, to go to the enemy. Um, and that's one of the things that we, you know, was in there too about the summer stuff. So, and I, I know like some players wish like that he would take some of that back because I think they liked having that relationship with him. Right. Um, cause that's one of his strengths is that it's, it's being, you know, that, um, <clears throat> not, not necessarily the player's coach per se, but just a guy that had some open communication with his players. Yeah. And I think that was a, that's, but I think that's what he liked. Like, I don't, you know, it's funny because after they fired Del Rio and some people wanted that move a long time ago and they wanted it after the third game of the year, which you weren't going to do. But they're like, oh, well, they don't, you know, because you say, like, this is not, I don't think Rivera really wants to be calling the plays. I think it just got to a point where it's like, this is a last, this is the last thing maybe we can do to turn this around in his mind, right? And him, him thinking that to himself. And, um, but prior to that, I just, I think it was, You've got these guys, and you can talk to them. I think he did. I mean, I know he did because they, you know, they would talk about various aspects of it, and he would watch film, and he would talk to them. But um, I think it's just a matter, matter of trust. And when, he, when it started going Carolina, I think that's when, when he didn't have, like on defense, the coordinators that maybe he had as much confidence in as he had in Wilkes and, and McDermott, um, perhaps. And, and then he had to take on a role there, too. And I just don't... I don't think that's what he necessarily wanted to do. So I think there's, it's empowering coaches um, seems to be what he preferred, and then he can handle even, all the other stuff. Even though he has said he was much more of a delegating <laughs> CEO coach here than he was at, at Carolina. Yes. But yeah, and, and yes, yes, yes. So one quick question. Other than the, the, the massive scheduling changes, you know, did he give Scott Turner basic freedom and autonomy over running the offense? Well, to a degree, but then you would hear, you know, there would be games where they'd get away from the run, and you ask him about it, and he's like, yeah, we got to get back to what we do. And the next week, they'd run the ball more. And so, like, wow, there's a, whereas with the enemy, it's like, well, this is what they're doing, right? This is what the style they want to run, and it's for this and this and this reason. It's really helped Sam develop. It's really, you know, it's the extended handoff theory, et cetera. Um, other people would say you had a struggling off a line that wasn't great at pass protecting, and you had a young quarterback, and you asked him to drop back forty to forty-five times a game. Tough way to live, even if it's even even in games where the score wasn't wasn't um, out of hand. So, but like that, but he seemed to be all on board with that. Whereas with when Turner was here, I think there was definitely a desire at times to kind of 
you know, inject like the direction that he wanted to go with the offense. Just to like, don't forget, this is what we need to do, kind of thing. All right, um, let's look forward. We're one month away from the first Monday after the regular season ends. I think we're all expecting there to be a lot of activity. What um, do you have a guess as to a the timeline and b how they'll go about it? Will it be you know an overall? team president who will hire a GM who will hire a coach will it be just a GM then a coach what do you give give me give me the timeline and your hunch on the next month plus well I think the timeline would be pretty quick I don't know why you know short of winning their last four games why you would need to not make a decision fast and you know the understanding of always had well the way he's always done things is you you get the you get the GM who's going to hire the coach. Now then it depends. I think even if there's a president, let's say if it's Jason Wright or whomever, because Jason Wright still has that title, is he going to stick around? I don't know. Is it going to be in the same fashion that it was when when Jason Wright was hired? And, and it seems like with with Harris that there, he likes to have the separation of church and state, so separation football side and then business side. So I did my sense has been that it'd be hire the GM than hire the coach. So, you know, that I would, and I think as we know, like it's going to be hard for the coach just because it depends on who they want and where their team is at in the postseason. So, but with the, with the GM, you can hire them after the season. So, you know, that, that, but I would expect it to be relatively soon. There's no reason to drag it out. And I don't think it'd be fair to the people here, you know, if you know that, and, you know, for the staff, people if, that you're going to let go, let them have a chance to catch on somewhere. Give them as much chance as possible. Right. And by the way, I want to make one thing clear for everybody. Jason Wright is the Washington Commanders team president. Now, he has responsibility over the business operations of the organization, and Ron's had responsibility over the football, but he is actually, by title, the team president of the organization. Um, And what John was just alluding to, uh, I I don't know if you were about to go there, but I think I, I, I will. it's very possible that Jason Wright could stay on, but not as, you know, the team president with responsibility over the the entire organization. There would be a, there'd be a separation of, of making sure that whoever is in that role is more of the business person. Correct. And then somebody would be in an equal role on the football side title. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. Right. And you know, I, cause I just, I mean, the way it was set up was not under Josh Harris. So, you know, and I know the way he does other stuff, it's, there's a separation. And so I could see, certainly could see that happening here. So, and then, but yeah, and I don't, you know, like, and as he said, he was given everybody or he's told Josh Harris told people, give everybody that full year so he could fully evaluate who, what he has and what he wants going forward in the organization. All right, quick break. Uh, John will stick around, and we'll get to Sam Howell next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors.
This segment of the show brought to you by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code, KevinDC, and MyBookie will give you a cash bonus on your initial deposit. 4-1 and one on the NFL yesterday, smell test-wise, with two picks pending tonight. I've got the... Uh, Giants plus the points. It was six and a half on Friday. I bought the half point to get it to seven. Uh, you're at six and a half at my bookie right now. I've seen a lot of sixes out there. So if you want to try to get it to seven, sign up with my bookie right now. And then Tennessee plus the 14 at home against Miami. So four and one yesterday. I did have Navy on Saturday. So a four and two smell test so far this weekend with two Monday night games pending. By the way, Washington. At my bookie right now, a six and a half point underdog uh, in a game Sunday that starts at four oh five. Mybookie.ag promo code Kevin DC. We continue with John Keim, and I want you to play general manager here for a moment because we have no idea what the new regime will want, uh, who they will want, what their preferences will be. I want to know what you think should happen. You're the GM. What do you do at quarterback? Right now, let's say they stick at four, right? You're still probably looking at possibly the third quarterback in the draft. If they, I'm assuming, let's say, let's say they, you know, they all come out, right? Um, You're looking at the third quarterback. Is that, where you want to go, it's like, let's say it's Jaden Daniels. And I haven't studied at all. Like, you know, I talked to some people last week who were like, well, this season moved Daniels his talk about him into the first round. Nobody, they, 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 you know, and this is just one person's opinion, but it wasn't like they said, well, he's now moved into the top five consideration. And maybe he gets there because of the position he plays and the multidimensional threat that he is. <clears throat> but there's so much to learn there with him. So, you know, I could see... Like, there's a lot that I really like about Sam Howell. And I'm really intrigued by these next four weeks. I mean, it's really all about, on the field, it is all about him. Because they need to decide this. So what I still want to see is, you know, the handling of pressure and some more consistency with that. Not just on him, and and it's not all about him. Like, he needs some help around him, for sure. But, and it doesn't mean it's like, okay, you completed this pass, that's great. It's about decision-making under duress you know, regardless of final results. And, you know, if he continues to handle that, then I'm comfortable building around him. I will, I will say for sure, before I know, I am going to study whoever's coming out because I think you owe it to the organization to look. When you haven't had a quarterback for decades that, that has stuck around for more than a few years, you don't just say, well, we're, we're good. You know what I mean? Like you're, so if I'm the GM, it's impossible for me to say right now on December, whatever today is, that I'm going to go this way or that way. But I'm absolutely going to investigate another quarterback just to make sure. Because if you don't, you're doing a disservice to your organization. Because if you think that, you know, Jaden da- Daniels or, or, or Drake May, if you have, whoever you have a chance at, is going, has a much higher ceiling than Howell, well, then how do you not take them? Um, but if they come out and say, you know what, we're good here, and they trade back a little bit to get more capital for someone who may want to move up to get one of those guys, then, you know, I'm fine with that because I like a lot of qualities he has, but I absolutely, I would absolutely 
without saying for sure, because I don't know, but I, what I would do is check it out. I'm not going to close it off just because um, of what I've seen so far. I mean, there's stuff, there's a lot that I like, but what if you get someone else? And then, because then you look at it and say, okay, well, if you draft one of these guys, now you have a five-year clock again with a lower contract cost, um, and it's a new regime, so you're starting over. Um, and, um, you know, so I'd be okay with that if that's what they determine. But I definitely would look it out, check it out, and just see, is this a better option or not? Because you owe it to yourself, the organization, the fans, whomever. You know, you can't come in and just say, well, this guy, it's problem solved. But if, you know, here's the other problem, Kevin, is that make it, make it, if, you, if you're how, make it as much a no-brainer as you can. That's what these next four games are about. And they're against good teams and good defenses, but that's a great test for him and the offense. Yeah, uh, I know that probably didn't answer it the way you probably wanted. Well, I mean, you you but it, but you, it's hard. you yeah. do you do that all the time because you're more of a reporter and I'm just a blabber. Yeah. So I say, actually, what you said, which is, I, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I think it would be you know irresponsible um, based on what right. I've seen through 13 games not to take seriously the quarterbacks at the top of this draft, all right. the quarterbacks in the draft, but given where they'll be drafting, and I'll throw one other caveat into it, is that Chicago is likely to have the number one overall pick through Carolina, and and Justin Fields all of a sudden is playing better. What if they're interested in trading that pick, and you're sitting there with the third or fourth pick in the draft? You may have an opportunity if Caleb Williams or Drake May or, you know, I mean, it's been Caleb Williams for a year now, but if Caleb Williams right. really is, in your estimation the next you know Patrick Mahomes you'd be irresponsible not to do it I'll, I'll, I'll read this one quote I'm looking for it real quickly give me a minute but um I got this tweet I loved reading it last week here it is um Kevin if they think the quarterback in the draft at their position is much better than Sam Howell then pick him if not yeah. then don't <laughs> yeah. yeah that's all it is that's it that's a, that's I mean it's right. not really okay. that hard that's yeah. No, and I'm okay with like if they thank said, you, Yanni. We, 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 if they said, yeah, thank you. Yanni. If they said, we, hey, we checked it out, we did this our due diligence, and we like Sam. We just think he's better. Then build around him. Right. No problem with that. You know, and you could then in that situation, you may be able to. Here's but here's what I would do in that case, Kevin. In that case, I'm going to try as hard as I can to trade back, pick up another pick in this first in, in this draft. Good, another good pick but also get something for next year. Copy the Eagles model. You know, they went with Jalen Hurts, but they protected themselves by getting another first-round pick in the following draft. Yep. Just in case. Just in case. Because if it does, if they, because part of it is, it's not just, it's evaluation of Sam. It's also like, well, how good are these quarterbacks really? And it may be that, like, you know, we just like Sam better than this guy, but are you ready to commit to him for four or five years or just for this year and then see and just see how he does? Because, if that's the case, then I'm getting capital for next year too, just in case. And and if you don't need it for that, then you got more picks to to you can go out and trade for a guy. You can do whatever. You know, again, the Eagles model has worked as far as how they've approached the draft and their aggressiveness. And I would I would do that. I would add something in the future, just in case. And again, if how if how continues to improve and grow, and he and he looks like the guy for the next five to ten years, as John Allen says, great. Then use those picks for some other capital. Perfect. All right, great job. Am I going to um, hang up with you, and then there's going to be this bombshell story uh, two hours no, later no. that's out on ESPN.com no. like I did last week? <laughs> I'm kidding. No, and I did, I did tell you, I'm like, because you asked me last week, like, well, maybe you want to wait a day, but I'm like, well, I wanted to make sure because sometimes 
the story's like, yeah, we're going to run it tomorrow. And it's like, you know what? We're going to hold it another day. No, I know. So right. just like, you know, it's just, you never know. And so, um, but yes, <laughs> there's nothing, you know, there's nothing. I think, I think probably to be honest, like some of the stuff I'm writing next will probably be some of what we just talked about with Sam Howell. So, I mean, cause because, we certainly, cause that's, we certainly else, haven't written and talked about him enough this year. No, um, and what else, to be honest, at this point, what nothing. else, does it really, you know, does, you know, unless it's like, unless it's like, well, is Terrell Burgess going to make the Pro Bowl? I mean, that's kind of a funny story, but you know, <laughs> that was hysterical. You know I mean? like, okay, so let me is. just ask you. I mean, I saw that and I'm like, wh- what? And I and actually, you know what? You and I did talk about this, but not on the air. We talked yeah. about it off the air because. Right. I said to you, I said, this has to have been a mistake where people voted for thinking they were voting for Jeremy Reeves. They just couldn't remember the name from last year. And you agreed with that, right? I do. I do. And that's like, I know he's made a couple plays, but it hasn't been a top vote getter. (laughs) I mean, it's like Jeremy Reeves, like you, you felt the impact last year. I mean, and you know, and again, I think Burgess has done a nice job on special teams when I've been able to watch him. But, but yeah, no, that, so, but, but that's the point. Like there's really, you know, I would, I'd be curious to see, like just looking at the last four weeks, besides how, what other storylines are there really? And it's really about the future and it's, but it's hard to just talk about the future for, for the next when month. They're pl- when they're Man. playing games, but no, you're, yeah, when games. it's been about Sam Howell for a few weeks and it will also oh. be for me. Oh, yeah. For me, I'm really interested because I think, you know, at some point we'll get actual names of potential candidates. Um, yeah. Or maybe we won't. Maybe we won't. Maybe they're so good there <laughs> now and so tight-lipped that they'll, they're not going to, you know, put Ron out to, you know, out to pasture with I think, before, I think it, before be they pretty, actually I, do it. I think they'll be respectful of him. Yeah, they, like, li- they like him, don't they, guess. John? They, they like abso- him. They absolutely, they yeah. absolutely like him. I think in their in their their druthers would be, hey, make it so that way you can stick around. But but that's at four and nine. That's not what's happening. But I do. It does seem like they have a good relationship with him, and you know, it sounds like he has liked working with them. So yeah. it's been a good relationship. It's just four and nine, and it's not. But so like the other parts. So that's why like on the field. Does Emmanuel Forbes come back, and does he play better? You know, because like, that guy, he's going to be here. You know, does Quan Martin play better? You know what I mean? So, like, there are some young guys, but that's, that's not moving the needle. Sam Howell moves the needle. And if he can play well and, if, you know, and finish strong against good teams, then I think that would bode well for, for a lot of reasons. And, um, you know, but I, I would say this, too. Like, in some ways, if you're a GM or a coach, whether you like how or not, you know you're in a good position at quarterback to either get a guy or compare him to a guy that has done something that you may like. You know, so I think they're in a they're in an okay spot in that regard. I, I, you know, as you're saying that, I'm like, you know, because we always talk about this about how quickly opinions change on teams, on players, on coaches, etc. And with four games left, okay, you know, basically a quarter of the season, just a little bit less than a quarter of the yeah. season. I mean. The last two games were the two best defensive teams they faced all year long, and it, they were not good days yep. for Sam. They play three more games against excellent defensive teams in the Jets, the Niners, yep. and Cowboys. It is possible, since Sam is the focus the rest of the way, 
that he doesn't really play well at all and we have even a different opinion because like I know we're going long here and you've got to run but I've said multiple times over the last couple of weeks that if I told you before the Cardinals game that Sam Howell after 13 games was going to lead the league in interceptions lead the league in sacks allowed be 21st in QBR 23rd in passer rating you would say without even hesitate with no hesitation well of course we're looking for a new quarterback in 2024 but it's it's that we've watched him play and we've seen a lot of good to go along with the bad which has kept everybody in it which has kept him in the mix but you know four more games we might feel either more encouraged or perhaps more discouraged who knows Right, and I think just the last thing for me on that would be that it's not. That's why I said it's about process more than results for him. Like, how are you getting to this decision, right. and what yeah. are you showing for that? It's not just about like, oh, you scored thirty points or you scored twenty. It's about how are you arriving? How are you handling the pressure that's now coming in the pocket? Are you making certain decisions, and even if it's throwing it away or something like that? So, how are you doing that? But the other thing I think that really would matter to me as well like you can look at and say well and someone else could say well listen my scheme's going to do this for him and like you watch like what mike mcdaniel has done for tua like that scheme is really helping now tua executes it well give him credit that scheme really takes advantage of all that so right. i think if you're another coach you're going to look at it that way too like how would he fit in my scheme? sure forget just like oh he threw his interception here because the guy knew it was coming or whatever um i think that's one thing and then the last thing on it too would be um, oh geez now I lost oh the, the, some of the other qualities that he's shown like it's been a tough situation the kid has never buckled he's Agreed. never flinched yeah he's never broken he's never been broken like you look at like what and someone else pointed this out to me that Zach like, look at Zach Wilson in New York it seems like it's an up a roller coaster with him every week about about him and what you know and whereas you don't feel like Howell's ever come close to imploding or handling it poorly he's really handled it well. I think there's all those qualities that allow him to handle it well, I think give him a shot to be a pretty good quarterback in the future. No doubt. And, you know, if he has a couple more 300-plus yard days, he's going to be well beyond 4,000 yards for the season. And he's going to be, in terms of passing yardage, top three or four all-time in franchise history. Um, so, uh, but, but I think you make the, 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 the most important point, and that is the football people are going to look at him and the process, and is he progressing on things that perhaps right. have resulted in plays that have gone badly? And then, Correct. to your point as well, the new coach in the new system, is he like a fit for what they want to do or is somebody else Correct. a better fit? We'll see. Uh, great job. I know you yep. got to run. I appreciate it as always. Thanks, Kevin. Always enjoy it. All right, John, perfect. Go. Kirk, thanks, uh, man. Right, th- I just got a call, too, so that's perfect. Thank per- you. All right, see you. Thanks. See you. Three, two, one. All right, three, two, one. John Kime, everybody. Uh, that's it for the day. Back tomorrow with Tommy.